Assyrians do it. Mongols do it. Even educated Romans do it. Let's do it. Let's put that city to the sword. To the sword. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. That was Rachel and I singing a duet about killing every last man, woman, and child in a captured city, which is today's dead idea, putting cities to the sword. When was the last time you put a city to the sword? It's probably been a while, hasn't it? We don't really do that much anymore these days, and if it happens now, we call it an atrocity. It's just not good manners anymore. But there was a day and an age when it was expected, kind of like cigarette smoke in restaurants. Special guest host Neil Eckert of the show War and Conquest is back on the show today, and he and I are going to tag team this one to tell you all about this grisly ancient practice. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. If you've ever played the computer game Civilization, when you capture a city, you are presented with three options. Annex the city, which means it becomes part of your empire. Puppet the city, which means it pays you heavy tribute in gold. And raise the city, which means you burn that shit to the ground. And unless you just want the perverse thrill of seeing that population counter tick down to zero turn by turn, I don't know why you would ever choose option number three, but in actual history, it was surprisingly common. Today, we're going to explore who put cities to the sword and why in actual history. Returning for a second time as guest host today is the host of the podcast War and Conquest, Neil Eckert. Neil, thanks for being on the show. I said, before I start, I just kind of feel a little messed up about this whole scheduling thing. You schedule me after Dan Carlin. I'm like the kid standing next to the well-hung guy at the urinal feeling a lot of uh, a lot of shame <laughs> here. I feel you have one of the biggest guys in the history community, and then you have my little tiny podcast right afterwards. So, But I'm, ha- I'm happy to be here either way. I'll, I'll take what I can get. So, <laughs> Folks, this is going to sound a little patched together today because when Neil and I sat down to record, we were actually intended to talk about something completely different. We were going to cover the practice of sacking a city, which means plundering it for treasure, loot, or anything not nailed down, basically putting the city in a sack in an almost literal sense. It was a convenient way to finance an army. You didn't necessarily have to pay your soldiers if you could lure them with promises of fabulous plunder. Pretty sweet deal, and very common in the ancient world. Also, dead today. We don't really do that anymore. But Neil really, really really wanted to talk about the killing that so often went hand in hand with sacking. So much so that he chose as his primary illustration the slaughter of a varicum in which Julius Caesar's men were so pissed at the Gauls that they forgot all about plunder in favor of butchering everyone in an orgy of destruction. And at that point, we realized we're not really talking about sacking anymore This was a different practice. This was putting a city to the sword. Neil is going to tell us about how Julius Caesar put the Gauls of Avericum to the sword, and he's going to frame that story with some psychological research about what it takes for a soldier to actually kill in war. But before that, we need some background context, so I'm going to fill that in for you now. 
What does it mean to put a city to the sword? It's not the same as sacking, as I mentioned. Sacking is focused on plunder. It's not the same as raising a city either, which is focused on destroying its buildings. Yes, the game civilization confuses things a little bit by conflating raising with putting to the sword, but we could do better than that, can't we? Let's be precise, putting a city to the sword is specifically focused on killing. Basically, it's just what it sounds like. You round up everybody in the captured city, combatants and civilians alike, and execute them down to the last. Now, just imagine your hometown. Small or large, think of how many people are in that town. And now imagine the entire population gone, extinguished, wiped off the face of the earth. Often it took days to finish the job when you were given the task of putting a city to the sword. I can hardly imagine a more terrifying prospect. And that was actually the point of it all, to terrify. You wanted to send a message to all the other cities that this is the fate that befalls those who resist or rebel. It was not really a military tactic at all. It was really much more of a propaganda strategy. You wanted to send a message, less to the people that you were killing and more to all the other cities around who were watching, that you were a badass and you were not bluffing when you said surrender or die. That was your propaganda strategy. And in fact, it's for this very reason, the propaganda aspect of it, that it's actually hard to know with historical certainty whether a given city was really truly slaughtered to the last, or if it was just claimed to be to gain the propaganda bonus here. Often, it was in the conqueror's interest to inflate the numbers killed in order to look more badass and thereby bully other cities into submission. Or the ruler might inflate the numbers in order to portray himself the way a ruler is perceived to supposed to be, you know, in this traditional type like, I slaughtered a city like my father before me and his father before him, even if the reality of the city you captured actually differed a bit from the mold. And it might even be in the loser's interest to inflate the numbers killed in order to make the conqueror look more like a villain. And it's not uncommon at all to hear about a city that was supposedly completely put to the sword down to the last on one page of a text and then hear about that very same city on the next page paying tribute. How does that work? This all suggests that the slaughter may not have been as complete as it's made out to be in all cases. And all of this kind of makes it very hard to know with certainty how many were actually killed in any given case. But even if every number that we get is halved, that's still a fuck ton of people killed, and if even only half the number of cities were put to the sword that are claimed to be put to the sword, that's still a fuck ton of cities. What we can say for certain is there is a long, long list of cities that are said to have been put to the sword and at the hands of a wide variety of cultures. We can start with the Old Testament. The book of Joshua glorifies the conquest of Canaan, which is a bit mythical. Modern archaeological research suggests it really wasn't so much a conquest as a slow infiltration and mixing of peoples. So there may not have been quite as much killing as it claims in the book, but at minimum, it illustrates an ancient attitude toward conquest 
In the book of Joshua, city after city is butchered like sheep, and just in chapter 10 alone, no less than six cities are exterminated. Here's a quote. Makeda too, Joshua captured and put to the sword at that time. He put the city, its king, and every person in it under the ban, leaving no survivors. Thus he did to the king of Makeda what he had done to the king of Jericho. And he goes on to do the same to the cities of Libna, Lachish, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir, along with a bunch of other folks in the countryside. And the fact that this book portrays, and indeed glorifies, the mass slaughter of captured cities suggests that the idea of putting a city to the sword was by no means unheard of at the time of writing, which was around the 7th century BCE. And it also shows that this practice was not considered outrageous and might even be seen as holy and right and indeed ordained by God. Now, at the very least, putting a city to the sword could be seen as the right thing to do in those days. At least, that might be the case when you were the ones doing the slaughtering. If it's done to you, that is a totally different story. The ancient Israelites hated the Assyrians, as did most other people in the area, because the Assyrians seemed to take a special relish in putting cities to the sword. Assyrian rulers would actually advertise their grisly deeds far and wide by setting up commemorative stone steels, or stele, or how do you, however you pronounce that word. A phrase often repeated on these monuments is, I destroyed, devastated, and burned with fire. And that is the safe-for-work version. The NSFW version of it goes a little more like this. I built a pillar at the city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Yikes. That comes from an inscription in a temple at Nimrod, recording the capture of the city of Suru in 878 BCE. Suru had rebelled against the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, and the goal of the Assyrians here, as in so many other cases where Assyrians put cities to the sword, was to intimidate. The message was, this is what happens if you rebel. And that strategy pretty much underlies the goal of pretty much every civilization throughout history that did this. It didn't work terribly well, strangely, though. I don't know why people kept doing it, because the Assyrian example here, the whole point was to prevent rebellions, and there were constant rebellions against the Assyrians. And, you know, big surprise, unbridled violence does have a way of turning people against you. In the words of Princess Leia to Emperor Palpatine, the more you tighten your grip, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. That's exactly what people were probably telling the Assyrian kings. Nevertheless, they didn't learn their lesson. The Assyrians made putting cities to the sword a state policy, and in the end, they suffered the same fate as the Empire in Star Wars. That didn't stop anybody after them from doing the same thing either. And not all of those other civilizations that came after were as barbaric as you might consider the Assyrians. In fact, in 416 BCE, a culture no less civilized than ancient Athens took up the practice one fine day during the Peloponnesian War with Sparta. A certain island in the Aegean Sea, called Melos, had refused to join one side or the other in the war, Athenian or Spartan. Their strategy was to remain neutral, like Switzerland. Well, Athens thought that was BS, so they demanded that Melos join them, and when the Melians refused, the Athenians were so insulted that they besieged the city. 
Thucydides reports, Siege operations were now carried on vigorously, and, as there was also some treachery from inside, the Malians surrendered unconditionally to the Athenians, who put to death all the men of military age whom they took and sold the women and children as slaves. We're not given a death toll by Thucydides, but it was probably in the thousands, if not tens of thousands, judging by city size and the size of the armies that were fielded in that conflict. Yeah. The Romans, too, made a habit of this. We'll be hearing about Julius Caesar, obviously, in just a bit here when Neil takes over. But why stop there? There's so many more examples that we could cite. The Romans in 390 CE, for example, and 390 CE is into the Christian era now, put the city of Thessalonica in northern Greece to the sword. And for one of the more interesting reasons of all the cities on our dirty laundry list today, apparently the magister of the region, Butheric, had arrested a popular charioteer for a homosexual offense. And the people were so upset about this, not the homosexual offense part, but that their charioteer had been put in jail, that the people revolted. Well, when Emperor Theodosius I caught wind of this revolt, he sent in the army with orders to take no prisoners, and church historian Theodoretus writes, The anger of the emperor rose to the highest pitch, and he gratified his vindictive desire for vengeance by unsheathing the sword most unjustly and tyrannically against all, slaying the innocent and guilty alike. It is said 7,000 perished without 80 forms of law and without even having judicial sentence passed upon them. But that, like ears of wheat in the time of harvest, they were alike cut down. Supposedly, the emperor repented his decision and sent a messenger to call off the murder spree, but it was already too late. Whoopsie. 7,000 killed in the massacre of Thessalonica. Speeding on through history now, the Mongols were another people particularly known for putting cities to the sword. The 13th century Persian historian Rashid al-Din Hamadani reports that the capture of Nishapur saw the massacre of some 1,747,000 people. Now again, numbers are likely inflated, yet even conservative modern estimates place the total death toll of the Mongol invasion of Central Asia, so not just Nishapur, but the whole thing, at around 15 million people within the span of five years. Holy shit. <laughs> Yikes. Much as with the Assyrians, this was a propaganda piece. When the Mongols approached a city, their standard policy was to give the city a chance to surrender. Which might sound kind of like noble and magnanimous, but this was the original speak soft but carry a big stick strategy. Because what they were counting on was their reputation from countless cities beforehand who had refused to surrender and had been slaughtered as a consequence. Our last example today, and I could go on citing many more, but I think you get the idea by this point, does not surpass the Mongols in sheer numbers killed, but it does provide a most poignant note on which to end this overview. In 1645, the Manchu Qing Dynasty of China put the citizens of Yangzhou to the sword as a lesson against resistance. And what makes this incident so special 
is we actually have an eyewitness account for this one. The contemporary Wang Xuchu, probably mispronouncing that horribly, reports in his Diary of the Ten Days of Yang Zhao, Several dozen people were herded like sheep or goats. Any who lagged were flogged or killed outright. The women were bound together at the necks with a heavy rope, strung one to another like pearls. Stumbling with each step, they were covered with mud. Babies lay everywhere on the ground. The organs of those trampled like turf under horses' hooves or people's feet were smeared in the dirt, and the crying of those still alive filled the whole outdoors. Every gutter or pond we passed was stacked with corpses, pillowing each other's arms and legs. Their blood had flowed into the water, and the combination of green and red was producing a spectrum of colors. The canals, too, had been filled to level with dead bodies. Then fires started everywhere, and the thatched houses caught fire and were soon engulfed in flames. Those who had hidden themselves beneath the houses were forced to rush out from the heat of the fire, and as soon as they came out, in nine cases out of ten, they were put to death on the spot. On the other hand, those who had stayed in the houses were burned to death within the closely shuttered doors, and no one could tell how many had died from the pile of charred bones that remained afterwards. Estimates put the death toll at 800,000 citizens, and it took 10 days to complete all that killing. Wow. Just wow. Now, like I said, I could go on listing incidents, but you get the picture. The only thing left to say here is just how different this practice is from today. I mean, because you might think, oh, no, we actually still do this. We just call it genocide now. Well, yes and no. I mean, we certainly do still choose to kill each other in very large quantities, but the reasons for which we claim to do it are quite different. Genocide has a racial or ethnic component to it, but the practice of putting cities to the sword was pretty indiscriminate in that way. Ancient cities tended to be quite multi-ethnic, very cosmopolitan, and you usually don't hear about conquerors selecting out this ethnic group or that one, you know, or like spare these people. You just don't get that very often in the reports. So it really, it wasn't about ethnicity or race, but about resistance. If your city resisted, you got axed. That was it. It was simple as that. And in the few modern instances where this does still happen, it really stands out. For example, in 1942, Adolf Hitler put two Czech villages to the sword, Lidice and Lazaki, and he did this in reprisal for an assassination carried out by the Czech army in exile. It was called Operation Anthropoid. Best name ever. But back to the story. Hitler put these two villages to the sword in retaliation, and all 173 males of Lidice were executed while the women and children were carted off to concentration camps, often ultimately to gas chambers. An additional 33 adults, both men and women, in Lazaki were also shot. Now, as horrible as that is, the total death count in this case is really relatively low compared to all those examples we heard before from earlier eras of history. And moreover, the death tolls here pale in comparison to the millions killed for ideological reasons by the Nazis. So that's really two different things going on. And just the very idea of 
putting these villages to the sword in the 20th century really sounds out of place, doesn't it? It's like a thing out of time. We just don't do that anymore. We find plenty of other reasons to kill each other en masse, but not usually like this. Putting a city to the sword is today a dead idea. All right, so that is our background context for today. But it still leaves a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, imagine it. If you're a soldier and you get the order to kill everybody, man, woman, and child, how do you, how do, you do that? Like, what makes a soldier able to carry out that kind of violence? And what does it look like when it happens? For that, I'm going to hand the reins over to Neil now, who is going to talk a little about the psychology of killing and then tell us the tale of Julius Caesar's massacre of the Gauls at Avericum. Neil, take it away. One of the exercises that most historians like to do, or anyone that studies history, is to try to visualize what it was like at a certain time period in history. What was the culture like? What were the people like? But certain historians, and I'm not one, but I read enough books and I try to put myself inside the story, I ask myself, not what was it like, but could I do the things that the characters in the story are doing? There are many things that we have done throughout history that might seem barbaric to our modern sensibilities. But I have a theory, and that theory is that strip away a lot of the benefits of civilization and put people in a hard enough situation, and that ugly side of us that we keep hidden below the surface that we tell ourselves is buried in the pages of history might just bubble up. And today, we are going to analyze the mental and psychological manipulation that commanders would do to trick ordinary people like ourselves into committing some of the most brutal acts in history. That gave me chills. <laughs> so I chose today's story, one, because Julius Caesar is one of my favorite historical characters, both as a political figure and a general. He's also a fantastic orator, author of several books, The Conquest of Gaul, where today's story comes from, was actually written by him and was one of the first primary history accounts that I ever purchased. This was actually a year or so before I got into podcasting. And in hmm. this book, Julius Caesar is justifying his actions toward the Roman people. Basically, because there was no CNN or live coverage back then, unless news dispatches were sent from the front, no one knew what was going on. And so Julius Caesar would write these gripping accounts of battles and sieges and mass migrations of people, and it would electrify the Roman public. And eventually he figured, man, I need to put this down in a book. And we believe he wrote this book during the middle of the Roman Civil War where public opinion was most needed. So he writes this book. It's basically propaganda, but it's also a firsthand account from a general of the time period when no one else wrote anything about this. It has some of the more brutal sacks and battles throughout history. And today's battle, well, is more of a slaughter towards the end, but there was a battle to begin with. We're going to be talking about the Siege of Avericum. It's a city somewhere in France, and it was besieged in 52 BC by Caesar's legion. And no, not the ones that were out in the New Vegas desert. No, this was the actual Caesar's legion. What? I guess you've What's never that? played Fallout New Vegas before. 
Oh, <laughs> no. If we could get my, if we could, <laughs> if we had gotten the webcam to work today, you would see my Caesar's Legion T-shirt I'm wearing right now. But okay, <laughs> I guess you wouldn't have gotten the reference either way. Anyway, we're getting off topic again. Sorry, I'm beginning to wander down the rabbit trails. So, what I did before I got into relaying this story is I decided to find other people who have written about war. And one of the best books I found was written by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He was a military psychologist. He based his work off of years of testimonials and psychological evaluations of soldiers returning in combat. Now you might say, well, people fighting in Vietnam and Iraq really went through a different thing than people did thousands of years ago. Well, the weapons and the tactics were different, but killing a man has more or less stayed the same throughout the years. People still feel the same sort of guilt, apprehension, and reluctance to kill their fellow men. But what he does in his book is he breaks down... Can you, what? Do you think that that's really true? That, that Like if you grow up in an ancient culture versus a modern culture, you feel like the feelings toward killing your fellow man is, is similar? Well, I mean, historically speaking, about 95% of battle casualties were people who were stabbed in the back. People have a hard time of killing people who are face-to-face because they see humanity reflected to them. And in Mm. psychological studies, it's found that the closer a person becomes to you, the harder it is to kill them. People who kill at maximum range with things like artillery have no problem pulling the trigger. But as your enemy gets Mm. closer the resistance gets harder and harder. And it's said the hardest thing to do is kill with your bare hands, the next being killing with a knife and then killing with a bayonet. And those last those last three were the really one of the only ways to kill people in the ancient world. You had to look a man in the eye as you ran your spear or sword through him. Other than a bow and arrow or something. Oh, yeah, but still, I mean, at that at the time still period, close yeah, range. 200 yards, yeah. you can still see the person drop when you hit them with an arrow. I guess I just would have expected that in an ancient culture, there's so much, I guess you could call it education, like hardening of of the citizenship toward bloodshed. Like in ancient Rome, for example, it was purposely done with the Colosseums and whatnot. One of the stated reasons for all the, the bloodshed in the Colosseums is to harden the populace so that they're ready for, you know, they'll accept war and its um, uh, violence, basically. So the, the, Ro- the Romans are a bit of an exception because they're a well-trained, disciplined hardened military force but the general rule throughout history was most armies comprised of people that would do things that like posturing like trying to just keep an enemy at a distance until someone turned Mm. their back and as soon as the face is gone all of a sudden that flight response that evolutionary thing that makes a running enemy much easier to kill kicks in and that's where the massacres happen with retreating soldiers hmm well, I mean, for instance, you we imagine would take World War II. World War II is the mm. bloodiest conflict in history. Did you know that only 15 to 20 percent of people ever fired their weapon? And that's frontline troops admitting to psychiatrists that they couldn't fire their weapon. And yet the bloodiest conflict in history where 60 million plus people died and only 20 percent of allied soldiers fired their weapon at all, not even at the enemy. Only 2 percent admitted to shooting to kill. So 2% of the population did almost all of the killing in World War II. 2%? Yeah. Wow. And with these ancient sources, a lot of these people are writing these biographies to make themselves feel better. Who wants to admit to the pages of history that they were afraid to kill their fellow man when your society was made on killing? So people selectively forget. They decide to not 
record things. I mean, how many times do we hear about the fear of soldiers in battle? It's not glorious or heroic. You can't make epic poetry about someone crapping themselves and being unable to fight. <laughs> I would read that. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. and But fortunately, there are workarounds to it. And so this is where Grossman's theorem comes in. The individual soldier by himself, more often than not, will not kill an enemy when he's one-on-one -on -one with them. There's hundreds of historical accounts you can go through of two soldiers looking at each other and then just turning and walking away. But there's a number of different influencers that can psychologically manipulate soldiers into killing. Things like, for instance, flight response. We talked about all that already, the fleeing soldier. Peer pressure, not wanting to either let your comrades down or look stupid or cowardly in front of them, which generally speaking, militaries attract alpha males. So no one wants to look weak. And so sometimes they act in a violent manner to save face in front of their friends. Things like group absolution. If things happen in a group, then the group takes responsibility instead of the individual. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that helped over time develop soldiers. And the Romans would change that with their centuries and then the, up to the larger military thing. That's another one of the innovations that the um, Romans did is they brought their officers in to pressure their soldiers into killing. That's another one of the Grossman's hmm. theories is the fact that many men often need to be ordered to kill. They have a very hard time refusing authorities. Even if they can assume we're going into battle, we're expected to kill, some men still need to be ordered to kill before they'll finally pull the trigger or stab, depending on what time period in history you're at. Hmm. Another is cultural difference. We see this even in our modern wars. We, The media and our the officers in the armies attempt to portray the enemy as savage barbarians. That's where a lot of the slang words that come in, if you listen to or you read a lot of modern historical commentaries, the Japanese were called Japs, or the Vietnamese mm -hmm. were called Gooks, or we call uh, the Arab people Hajis. It's the way to dehumanize them and make it like you're killing a caricature instead of a human. Mm -hmm. Another thing that spurs killing is the loss of comrades because oftentimes military bonds are tighter than those of family. You can listen to anyone who's just talking about it theoretically. Oh, if this happened to my family, there'd be nothing to stop me from killing the person who did that. Well, the bonds are similar in combat. But in combat, it's acceptable to avenge the death of your fallen comrade, whereas you spend life in prison if you do that in the civilian world. Mm -hmm. And the final thing I want to talk about is vengeance. The longer a campaign goes on, the more that the people resent the people they're fighting. So in this scenario we're going to talk about now, Caesar's legions had been fighting the Gauls for six years. There were plenty of times that they were wounded or personally attacked by Gauls. They had more than likely seen friends die. Sometimes Caesar's legions were at half strength. Half the men had either been killed or gravely wounded. And this cultural view of the enemy Celts as barbarians who mm -hmm. had a particularly contentious uh, relationship with the Romans made it much easier for them to justify wiping them out. The colonial powers of the British and well, the colonial powers of the Europeans, I'll say, I won't single out a single country like that. Mm -hmm. They use that same justification in their conquest of India and Africa. Oh, we're just killing savages. We can do whatever we want with them. Mm -hmm. The rules of mm -hmm. war don't apply to them. And that's it for the the points for the Grossman theory. Everyone keep an eye out for all these points. I'll try to bring them back and illustrate them, but you might be able to pick up on some of them yourselves. 
because I'm going to attempt now to weave the story of the Siege of Avericum in with these points. I don't know how successful I'll be, but we're going to give it the good scout try anyway. Right, and our point here is we want to show how all of these factors actually psychologically influence the people in this siege to be able to accomplish such a feat as putting Avericum to the sword, right? Yes. And okay. believe me, they're gonna as we'll see as we'll see in the next few minutes here, the Gauls gave the Romans plenty of reason to hate them, even if they didn't already have resentment built up already. I'm gonna do my best to try to keep this story as contained as possible, but I do love this topic, so I can I might just keep rolling. So you might have to do the whole lion tamer routine. Get your chair and your bullwhip out and get ready to, to keep me in line. I think I'm already kind of practiced in that. <laughs> All right, go for it. Okay, so basically how the story goes down is this. Caesar is in Gaul with his legions. He invades in 58 BC at the behest of one of the friendly Gallic tribes, which borders Roman territory. For those of you who don't know, Gaul is modern-day France, Belgium, Holland. I almost said the Netherlands too, but that's the same thing. And parts of Switzerland and Germany. And... As we said before, Caesar was brought in to dis solve a dispute with one of the local tribes, and he just decided to stay there. He kicked up his feet, and people kept causing trouble. So he just keeps defeating army after army. And in his book, he declares Gaul pacified three different times, basically <laughs> saying that we've annexed the settlement. They're, it's Roman territory now, and the Gauls have agreed to it. But then the Gauls are like, wait, no, we don't want that. And so now every battle after the initial quote-unquote pacification is now considered a rebellion, which allows the Romans to be, mm. which allows the Romans to be extra brutal. Which, sure. so, I mean, they're they're not just taking the gloves off; they're taking off the gloves and then throwing them into the fire and then pissing on the fire. Like this, this is the Roman military at a hundred percent power here. And there have been several warlords who have tried to unite several tribes to fight Caesar, but Julius Caesar having one of the best armies in the world at the time and being one of the best military commanders in history, just keeps brushing them aside. Well, in 52 BC, the Gauls have finally had enough of it, and a man named Vercingetorix, or Vercingetorix, or there's like a dozen different ways to pronounce it. We're probably all doing it wrong because this is ancient Celtic. Let's just call him Rix. Rix. <laughs> uh, so Rick is... Um, <laughs> He gets all the tribes together, and he unites them under one banner. He says, listen, the Romans are here to stay. They've been camping in our, in our wilderness for the past six years. They're not going anywhere. We need to unite. And so even the Roman allies at this time stab Rome in the back. And so they get everyone together, and they form in this big pan-Gallic army. They're going to go hand-in-hand hand and kick the shit out of Caesar. Well, Caesar really doesn't take too kindly to having this shit kicked out of him, and he defeats the next two armies sent against him. And so Vercingetorix has all the Roman citizens throughout his territories executed, the merchants, traders, tax collectors, anyone who even looks Roman is killed. And he decides on a new policy. He's going to use what's called the Fabian strategy, or it's a scorched earth policy. He's just going to just stay out of Caesar's range. He's just As Caesar marches through, they abandon the towns and villages, take all the grain they can, burn the rest and the houses, and just keep dragging Caesar's army farther and farther away, which is actually a pretty brilliant strategy. If you can't beat the Romans on the field, no matter how good you are at killing, eventually, if you're starving to death, you're not going to be able to fight anymore. But, yeah, I mean, it worked for the Soviets against the Nazis in World War II. Yeah, it's, it's the perfect thing. And this was 
And that was in a time where you had rail travel and bagged rations already. It was even worse mm -hmm. in ancient times because if you couldn't carry it on your back or have a mule carry it with you, you had to rely on the forage of the land to feed your horses and your troops. And so once the rations you brought in your backpack, your couple of days are gone, you're starving. But Caesar gets a break because one of the cities, Avaricum, decides not to burn itself down. All these other towns and whatever were easy enough to rebuild. They're just thatched huts that can be easily put back up in the course of a year. But Avaricum mm -hmm. is supposedly impregnable. And how many times I've heard that in history, I've had a dime, I would be a full-time podcaster. I could retire from work. Every the only reason to say that a city is impregnable is so that later in the story it can be impregnated. Yeah. It would be like if we were watching an episode of The Office, Jim would look at the camera, oh, the city's impregnable. <laughs> it's like in the, in the words of Patton, if mountains and rivers can be conquered, things made by God, anything created by man can be conquered. Hmm. But the citizens of Avericum have a good reason to believe their city's impregnable because it's surrounded by a river and a marsh on three sides, and it sits on top of a plateau with, like, 20-foot thick walls. It's a massive okay. fortification. And they decide that they beg uh, Vercingetorix, or, I'm oh, sorry, Rick, they beg Rick to... Um, <laughs> Ricks. <laughs> Ricks. Uh, they <laughs> they uh, plead with Ricks, and he says, you know what, he's not going to be able to get into Avericum. But Caesar's like, you know what, this is the first battle I'm going to be able to fight. The enemy just keeps running away from me. I'm going to make a stand here and besiege it. He's got a problem, though. Avera comes up on a plateau. You can't bring up your towers and your siege machines because they don't roll that well up a hill. So Caesar gets the bright idea, we're just going to build a big ramp. We're going to just, this is almost like an episode of Jackass. They're like, oh, we're just going to make this giant <laughs> thing to get into this city. Going to take it off yeah. some sweet jumps. My name's Johnny Knoxville. I'm here with Julius Caesar. We're going to take this city. We built the large, <laughs> biggest skate ramp in the world. Anyway, so, <laughs> so uh, Caesar begins building this ramp. And this is before, This is these are in the days before backhoes and front-end loaders, dump trucks, or any sort of motorized equipment. So the Romans have a bucket in their supply kit and a shovel, and they just start shoveling dirt into the buckets and dumping them to make their ramps. This is very time-consuming work, even with probably, I think he had about 40,000 people with him at the time. It still takes him a month to complete this ramp. And all the while, their food supplies are dwindling. So not only are they having to build this ramp, they have to do it on very little food because they didn't have time to bring their slow-moving baggage train because Vercingetorix was attacking them this entire time. He kept sending his cavalry through the Roman lines, so they didn't want to lose the baggage train because it was slower than the army. But now that they're sitting at Avericum, all the fields around them are burnt, so there's really nothing to forage. Caesar begins to question that mistake, but it's too late to pull out now. Hmm. So Vercingetorix camps behind Caesar and begins attacking the forage parties because the forage parties have to keep going farther and farther out because... As you can probably imagine, 40,000 people eat a lot of food in a day. And if you're sitting in one place for a month, you need to keep going farther and farther afield to find animals to hunt or things to scrape together to eat. But as they're doing this, the Gauls are cutting down all their patrols. And so now, at one point, the Romans are literally starving to death. I think the final week or so of the siege, they had no food whatsoever. And all the while, the Gauls both in Vercingetorix's army and Avericum are doing sally parties, burning down their siege equipment, the things they had just worked all day on, up in smoke. They've got no food. 
and very little hope of success. Oh, and I forgot to mention, it was raining the entire month that this was going on, too. Oh, the rain of everything else. They could have just, like, taken the city and just been, okay, this is cool. We'll all be buds now. But, man, they had to endure rain as well. These guys are going to be put to the sword. They're going to be so slaughtered. Yeah, I mean, and these this is an early spring rain, too. So it's basically like the winter. You get that nice, oh, like, 40-degree rain. 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 I mean, you live out in the Midwest. You know about that. You get those nasty storms all the time, I'm sure. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, at this point, I mean, I'm not saying I'm condoning what happened to the city. But, I mean, I'm ready to stab somebody in the throat if my morning routine is interrupted at work and I can't get my breakfast sandwich by 9 in the morning. So, I mean, I can... <laughs> I'm not condoning this, but I mean, I might have killed a person or two in a varicum for holding up my breakfast. So um, while all this is happening, the Gauls are building up the defenses of the city. I mean, it's not hard to prepare for a giant ramp coming. It's not like, oops, surprise, we're going to show up on the other side of the city with this ramp. You, you can't do that. You, just, you have mm. to slowly build it. So in, in a Vericum, there must have been surprise. a descendant of Donald Trump in there somewhere because he gets the brilliant idea of, the wall just got 10 feet higher and they just keep building the wall higher and higher in front of the ramp. So as the Romans are getting closer, they have to keep building the ramp higher and higher. And, you know, you have to taper it off more so it meets construction grade so people with wheelchairs can get up. You have to have a landing mm-hmm. every six feet. and uh, or eight, every, <laughs> Yeah, you got regulations every, on that in Rome. <laughs> every, every 18 inches you have to have landing. So the wheelchair, so Vericum is wheelchair accessible during the sack of the city. You don't want to discriminate against your crippled soldiers. They sacrificed a lot to be in that wheelchair. There's a reason why every legion has a fire marshal, you know. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to be against code. I mean, that's that's a fate worse than death right there. That's worse than breaking the Geneva Convention. <laughs> so during all this, after a month of lugging mud and slop and throwing it on the thing, fighting off sally parties against the citizens of both Avericum and the forage parties of Vercingetorix, the ramp is finally complete. But just before the Romans can take the city, the Gauls unveil their master plan. They've undermined the ramp from the city. They basically just dug a hole from the city underneath the walls into the ramp, and then they set the ramp on fire. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Oh, man. I am totally on Team Rick's here. Luckily, Luckily, Caesar has his legions at the ready. Because things were so bad in the camp at Avericum, Caesar had two full legions on guard duty every night. That's how bad these sally parties were. Now, for those of you who don't know your numbers, a legion is 5,500 men, or it's over 5,000 men. So he had 10,000 men, a quarter of his army, on guard duty every night. That's how bad things were at this siege. And so not not only are you lugging mud and making a ramp that the Gauls have just set on fire... Not only are you starving to death and your work keeps being destroyed every night, but now every four days you have to spend the whole night on fire watch as well. So you can really sense through the years how the hatred of these Gauls could be really built up. You could have people who would – you could probably transport 40,000 people from today who have no hatred of the Gauls, although it is kind of hard to find people in the world who don't hate the French, but – If you did find 40,000 people with no French prejudice and put them in those conditions, I think a good number of those would relish in finally taking this city and paying back with blood the loss of time, energy, money, and the friends that had been killed during all these raids. 
I feel you on that. That said, I like how it's also showing just how effective they were against an army as disciplined as the Romans. They just used some old-fashioned ingenuity and turned their own strategies against them. They undermined the, the ramp. <laughs> I, I'm on Team Rix. Yeah, well, Vercingetorix is one of the great uh, French heroes. He was actually revived yeah. back in the 1800s. Actually, interesting. it's an interesting tie-in with my show because my old logo used to be the surrender of Vercingetorix. It was a painting hmm. that I just mm -hmm. slapped a Microsoft Paint uh, header on the top because I didn't have the, the time or the money to get a graphic designer. So it's an interesting little tie-in. Vercingetorix is one of my favorite generals on the opposition side. And actually, he would have a siege later on in the story at Elysia where Caesar would have to build 27 miles of walls to defeat him. It's an amazing siege, but it's not quite as brutal as this one, so I picked Avericum over Elysia. Okay. So anyway, so we finally have the ramp is somehow salvaged, and for some reason, Caesar says the Gauls weren't not on guard duty that one day. I don't know why the ramp is up to the wall. You'd think you'd be on high alert from that point on, but that's what he says. <laughs> And his men charge into the city. They beat the soldiers off the walls. And the Romans, even in this time, they'd been starving. They'd At this point, they'd more than likely gone at least a, uh, five days or more with no food whatsoever. And they're still calculating enough to use effective strategy. Instead of just rushing into the city and fighting the Gauls, they just ring the walls. And they start shooting arrows. They bring up their catapults. They start throwing javelins into the city and massacring people. And at this point, okay. the will of the the will of the citizens breaks. They've had enough. So they just they use the city as a kill zone. They're occupying yeah. the high ground, the walls. Yeah. Okay. yeah this this gotcha. was no mad dash. If it was just a total hot blooded thing, they would just pursue the Gauls into the marketplace and fight them hand to hand. No, the Romans ringed the city walls and just started raining down hell into the city. And Does that play into what you were saying about how it's easier to kill from a distance? Because they would be high up. They would have that sense of superiority. They're using missile weapons as opposed to hand-to-hand. -to -hand. What do you think? Uh, it's definitely—I mean, the Roman system was designed for this. Every legionary had two javelins in his kit, which not only made an effective soldier, or your soldier is more effective being able to deal with range threats, but— um, yeah, it definitely did help. The farther away your enemy is, the easier it is to kill him, especially mm. if you're just looking down on them. But, I mean, at this point, I yeah. don't really think it matters, all the different things. It's just easier. While I have these javelins, I'm not going to be able to use them in street fighting. We may as well use them now. And so mm. after the, all their missiles are spent, the Gauls break. They decide it's time to get out of Dodge. We need to be out of here. Actually, something they said had happened two days before the Romans come into the city. The men had tried to sneak out, and their wives called them out. Like, listen, you're not going to run away while we sit in here and die because you wanted to defend this city. We're not going to become sexual slaves. And so they begin to raise a big stink, They're literally yelling at their men to come back. The Romans are alerted, and they have, they're shamed into coming back to the city. So hmm. at this point, that was likely running through their mind, and cohesion breaks down. They all turn their backs and try to run. Problem is, the gates of Avericum are small, and it becomes a choke point. People are dropping things. It, it's like rush hour traffic in New York City. No one can get out, and the Romans just descend on them. They began hacking and slashing and mutilating everyone. And the interesting thing about this siege is you can really see the hatred that the Romans have at this point for the residents of Avericum. There were no prisoners taken, which was extremely rare. A lot of times when the Romans come into your city, 
you either were killed or taken prisoner. The Romans loved their slaves because it was an easy buck. You could sell them to anywhere and get a lot of money back. Yeah, absolutely. And so the commanders, Caesar, all of these people take part in this massacre, and there's no prisoners whatsoever. That's That just shows you that the Romans at this point had one thing on their mind, and it was vengeance. They, they had had enough mm-hmm. of Vercingetorix and starving to death and having to put up with the siege and the rain and... Avericum is soaked in blood. I believe Caesar's numbers are, he gives, there was 40,000 people in the city. He said 800 survive. And those 800 were the first ones out of the gate that snuck away into the swamp. Everyone inside the city is killed. Now, what what ages are killed? Is there under a certain age that's spared? Are women no, spared? Everyone's are dead. elderly people spared? Everyone. Uh, yeah, out of 40,000 people, the only people who escaped are the ones that got away into the woods before the probably the first, the people closest to the gates got out before it became a traffic jam. That They were the only yeah. ones that, Caesar said it was 800 or so escaped out of mm-hmm. 40,000. The rest of them were butchered. So this, I mean, Avericum can't be that small of a city, but I imagine at this point the Romans are wading up to blood, at least to their ankles, because, I mean, 40,000 people plus 12 pints of blood, that's, that's a lot of blood in a, in a small area. It's <laughs> a lot yes. of blood, yeah. And Another interesting thing about this, and we, we were talking about this earlier, is the fact that this may have been one of the few sieges in history where the w- female population wasn't raped. They were just killed. So, I mean, I guess there's that. They don't have to live with that psychological horror anymore. They don't have to be Roman slaves doing whatever. They were just killed because this is a race against time because the Gauls were trying to escape. So in order to kill all of them quickly, you don't have time to take your pants off and have your way with the local females mm-hmm. because you're too busy killing them. So, I mean, I guess you can consider that a small mercy. I mean... Yeah, that's bittersweet if I ever heard one. I mean, a lot of rape survivors would agree that they would rather be dead, at least in the short term, than have to deal with with the psychological trauma of what they did. So, like I said, the small mercies Mm -hmm. in the story. But other than that, the Romans showed almost no mercy whatsoever, unless... Hmm. Well, if Caesar is to be believed, and he's the only eyewitness source we have here, so we're going to have to take his word for it. Hmm. So, and that's the city, that's the siege of Avericum, and it's subsequent being put to the sword. The Romans, like we said, took no prisoners, and interestingly enough, this does nothing to dull the fighting spirit of the Gauls. At this point, they've gone all in. They've sworn on all their sacred totems that they're going to carry on the war. They actually defeat Caesar after this battle. It's one of the few battles that Caesar ever loses, and then the siege of Alesia happens, where a quarter of a million Gauls come to fight Caesar, and he defends Alicia with 40,000 men and survives. Hmm. So do you think that Avericum for the Gauls became like, basically they were all martyrs, so it almost kind of like, it, it played into the Gauls' well, favor. Well, it, it, helped, it helped uh, Rex the most because he turned to his people and said, yeah, that was terrible, but guess what? You guys didn't listen to me. Had you listened to me, this wouldn't have happened. If you had abandoned Avericum and burned it to the ground, we wouldn't be in this position. So you made your bed, Hmm. sleep in it. Caesar says Hmm. after this, the Gauls followed Vercingetorix's orders unquestionably. Because Vercingetorix Hmm. had done everything right in this battle. He had camped far enough away from the Romans that he couldn't be attacked. He used his cavalry to starve the enemy into submission. And under many normal circumstances, the army most likely would have surrendered. I mean, you're in the rain you haven't eaten literally in five days or more. I mean, most people do give up, but the Roman willpower at this point was so strong 
that they continued mm-hmm. it. Caesar actually claims in his book that he offered to the officers and centurions several times, he said, listen, guys, like I know it's shitty out here. If you want, we'll end this siege. We'll pack up and go. And they supposedly say, no, we've put way too much time into this. We've never retreated before. We're not going to start now. We're going to complete this siege. So Caesar actually supposedly gives it up to his men to decide whether they want to stay. And they almost unanimously mm-hmm. vote to stay and fight against the Gauls at this city. Or so says yeah. Caesar, Well, I mean, right. we can argue about <laughs> whether they agreed to it or not, but actions sure. do speak louder than words. So they stayed mm-hmm. at the siege and it was successful, as bloody as that was. Hmm. Can we now, can we connect all of this back to Grossman's points that you brought up at the beginning? Like, how do each of those points, how, how are they illustrated in this story that we just heard? I mean, I can already start to think of things, but you yeah. can put it much more eloquently. Okay, so starting with my list, we have flight response. That would be the Gauls trying to flee the city, turning their backs and trying to get away after the Romans had ringed them. So we have our flight response mm-hmm. there. You have peer pressure. That more than likely wasn't that much of a thing. At this point, all of Caesar's legions had been in combat for many years. I mean, there was replacements that Caesar had doled out, but they were all surrounded by the hardened core of soldiers who had been fighting for six years now. So maybe some of the new recruits needed to be conjoled. But I mean, at this point, like we said, I can imagine a lot of modern people participating in an atrocity like this because of all the privations Mm -hmm brought up against them. I actually, I have an interesting quote from one of the the books I read. This is from author Carl Marlantis. He was a lieutenant in Vietnam. He says, in the intensity of war, we see ordinary evils driven by trivial causes, such as wanting to not look incompetent or soft, magnified into horrors. So little things that would irritate us in our daily lives or things that we would want to keep secret. In war, there's instant satisfaction of that. If you don't want to look soft, I'll just go out and kill someone. This person inconvenienced me. I'm going to go kill them. It would be like if we had swords during rush hour traffic. Can you imagine how many bodies would be laying on the side of the road of people who would, in fits of road rage, ended up killing their fellow men if that was something seen as socially acceptable? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't know how roads are around you, but I mean, New Jersey roads, there would be some some piles of corpses that would make the Mongols blush on the side of New Jersey roads if we were allowed to kill our fellow drivers and get away with it. <laughs> so, so we have the peer pressure there, group absolution. Once again, you have that mob mentality. Everybody's angry. Everybody wants to kill, and everyone takes part in it. I mean, you have roughly 40,000 people. If everyone kills one person, then you're good to go. I mean, more at this point, the, those 40,000 people have been reduced. You have people who are dying of disease and are sick and are hurt from the Sally attempts. But we have no real reason to believe that there was a lot of conscientious objectors sitting up on the walls while all the friends were butchering the Gauls. Uh, mm-hmm. Cultural difference. Uh, we've established before that the Gauls and the Romans hated each other. They both had plenty of animosity built up after these years, especially now that it was not only a rebellion on paper, but this all the allies that had fought side by side with the Romans for the past six years because the Gauls were auxiliary cavalry for the Romans were now fighting against them. So they have that extra twist of the Uh knife of betrayal that they have to avenge. Uh, Loss of comrades. At this point, you likely wouldn't have any units that didn't know someone who had been killed by a Gaul during the past six years. So, yeah, we can have that as a twist of the knife as well. And 
loss of comrades. Like I was saying, there was likely no cohorts that didn't have men who were killed, seriously wounded during all of this fighting. So they would have liked to avenge them. Plus just the general level of hatred built up by having to starve out in the rain, in the cold, in tents, in muddy conditions for all this time. I like to imagine these mm. ancient siege camps like that uh, that AMC show, Hell on Wheels, uh, where they have the camp and they all have to walk on little uh, boards and their tents are all covered in mud. Yeah, I, I imagine. I love Hell on yeah, Wheels. I'd never watched the end of it, but I think I watched like, the first like two or three seasons. But it, mm. I always imagine that as a camp because you have these muddy conditions and thousands of people walking back and forth. Eventually that ground is going to get all soft and wet. So it's no wonder why disease ravaged the camp. And as we've seen in today's story, as happened in many sieges throughout history, oftentimes it was just as bad, if not worse, outside the city in the siege camp as it was inside the city. Hmm. And that more or less wraps up Grossman's points there. I mean, there are more things we could talk about, but like I said, I don't think you want to be here all day. <laughs> so how is it different then from today? Um, well, for... There's a number of things that have changed over the years. For one, we don't structure our militaries to operate off the spoil system, which was often many of the reasons why you besiege sit, uh, settlements or walled cities is because you need to pay the army. There would, really wasn't firm, centralized banks. So, well, we need money. You're not going to get much from the poor farmers, but if you sack this city, everyone gets a nice little payday. And now mm -hmm. the yeah. state pays for everything and we don't sack cities. I mean, even if we did, like say we use a modern example in 2003 when the army and the Marines took Baghdad, there might there was probably some looting by the soldiers getting souvenirs. But I mean, if you kick in the door as an American soldier and you take all of an Iraqi's money, it's worthless. It's the money of a failed government. Oh, I got a 100,000 Saddams or whatever the hell they called their currency over there. It's not worth the money it's printed on because the government has collapsed. Whereas before, you can steal somebody's gold coin, and that gold coin works everywhere. Right, but what we're talking about here is not really the sacking of a city, but putting a whole yeah. city to the sword. So how is that part different from today? Well, I think the biggest thing is our attitude towards such actions. I mean, in modern vernacular, we would call something like what happened at Avericum an atrocity. And that's the big difference, whereas... I mean, it would definitely horrify le readers, especially if you're another Gallic town. But I mean, in Rome, this was cheered. I mean, Julius Caesar's dispatches at the time that he was sending them back and the time he wrote the book, people were throwing parades. Caesar was sending back carts with Gallic slaves and hostages and giving money to the poor. Look at all the stuff we're taking from Gaul. And he was loved. They threw the longest, they threw a 20-day games period because of this one victory. I forget which hmm. city it was, but that was the longest in Roman history, according to Julius Caesar. So Rome loved the fact that Julius Caesar was kicking in doors and taking everything from the Gauls. Whereas if you have a general who came back from whatever country we're in tomorrow and he killed 40,000 people, he would be in front of a military tribunal in Geneva and he would more than likely be hung. Hmm. And so I think it's more of a change in our attitudes is the fact that we would consider the sack of a city now and the putting of it to a sword an atrocity, whereas it was an expected thing. People of the day would more or less shrug their shoulders like, well, that's what happens when you resist. They should have taken the peace offer. Right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Neil, for telling us about all that. Very, very interesting. 
All right. Well, is there anything you want to plug at the end of this episode? Well, by the time this episode comes out, depending on how much I drag my heels on my next upcoming uh, epi- or series for War and Conquest, my mm-hmm. own podcast, on the Third Crusade, by the time this airs, I'll either be wrapping that up or already into the broader story of what we just heard. I'm going to talk about Julius Caesar, about his political maneuverings and the Gallic Wars, what led up to the Vercingetorix, or Rick as we call him, as rebellion, and then on to the Civil War. So Julius Caesar spent two decades fighting near constant warfare, and in the end, the Roman Republic was in ashes. And his adopted son, Octavian, who would later be known to us as Augustus, would become the first emperor of Rome. So if you enjoyed today's story, you should check that out. By the time this airs, I'll, like I said, I'll either be recording that or I'll almost be ready for that. So anywhere you find your podcasts, check out War and Conquest. Nice. And don't forget to rate and review War and Conquest on iTunes. It really helps any show. uh, It helps new shows especially. So don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. Show Neil some love, folks. And uh, listeners, also, do you have a dead idea that you want to talk about? Uh, We've just had Neil on twice here to talk about what he wanted to talk about. How about you? Come on the show and tell us all about it as a guest host. Just hit me up at deadideaspod at gmail.com. It's got to do with War and Conquest. Request me. I'll come back and do it again. I enjoy these episodes. I think, yeah, I think violence is the the key here for you, Neil. Oh, I love it. (laughs) Also, remember to subscribe to Dead Ideas to get new releases like this one, as well as updates on the development of our new show called The History of Sex, covering gender, sex, and quirk across cultures and throughout world history. Um, Like I always say, we can't say exactly when it will release because we're taking the time to do it right, but it's going to be good. It's going to be worth the wait. So subscribe to the Dead Ideas feed to keep up on that. And you can also support the development of that show on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Dead Ideas Pod. $5 a month gets you a portrait in the time period and culture of your choosing. And actually, Neil, you've been a guest twice now. And I have in the past offered portraits to people who come on the show. So if there's anything that you would like to be drawn as, you just let me know and I will make you look awesome. Good. I need something to to hang in my room next to my giant American flag. (laughs) I've got some wall space. (laughs) Very nice. Musical accompaniment for Let's Do It from the beginning of this episode was provided by Piano Busker, used under Creative Commons Attribution License. All right, everybody, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. (laughs) 